0: Just this past month, I was driving my uh, pickup down Penny Road when suddenly walnuts, I think, or acorns, ricocheted off my window. I knew some kid was probably congratulating his friend for a well-timed throw behind some tree, and I never even slowed down. I knew exactly what was happening. In fact, it took me back many years. I remember my older brother and I and some neighborhood kids would stash peaches along a hedgerow. and. And at just the right moment, we'd jump up and wham, let her fly. we often miss, but sometimes we'd hear the gratifying thump of a ripe peach. Sometimes, you know the cars would drive on, sometimes they'd stop, and we'd hear, "Hey, you," and we'd run, dive over the hedges and escape. and we love peach season. As I think about that now, I realize that I was there against my will. <laughs> it's my older brother. Well, of those people driving by, what was certainly irritating and probably startling, creating a messy spot, was just peaches. Many people, I fear, think that Satan's some mischievous little guy who lobs peaches at them every once in a while, makes a little mess, startles them some, maybe irritates them a bit. He's not a very good shot, most often misses. If he does hit it, it's the target, it's just a little messy, and it's just a right peach at the wrong in the wrong place. Then there are those that believe that the believer and certainly the world is just an open target to the spirit world and, and there's really no tangible protection as we drive through life. Go online as I did and just type in phrases like spiritual warfare and you will be taken to, as I was, over two million sites where you can surf, until you are entirely confused with everything imaginable relative to the angelic and demonic world, most of it sheer superstition, fabrication, and hocus pocus, certainly outside the revealed truth of God's word. You can see pictures of demons in clouds for a brief moment, of course, as the cloud moves on. You can learn miracle prayers to overcome them and prayers to invoke more angelic protection. You can watch videos from people who've died, had encounters with demons. One guy, I watched a little bit of his interview, he died, went to hell, came back, which is interesting to me because hell isn't occupied yet. It's Hades where people die and go and wait their coming torment. Nonetheless, you can purchase power supplying gems that have fallen from heaven you can hang them on your rearview mirror. You can even get gold dust that has fallen from the streets of heaven. I saw one man, his Bible was open. There it was. He stood there smiling as the gold dust was collected. And for a little money, you can get some of that gold dust yourself. You can buy miracle working water from Jordan, the Jordan River. But last but not least, you can learn how to say magic prayers that give you power over the spirit world. All of this, of course, ultimately destroys a biblical understanding of the gospel, that it is the power of God unto salvation. It certainly redirects a personal focus away from Christ and turns it toward the angelic or spirit world. It brings superstition. It brings fear to the hearts of those that are enmeshed and immersed in that. They are hopelessly left without any objective, tangible answer or guidance. And of course, ultimately, it diverts true worship away from and trust in our sovereign Lord. Our sovereign, victorious, personal, involved, caring God who triumphs over the evil one. Now, we happen to have the end of the story, do we not? We've been given a clear description of Satan... And his final attempts to thwart the purposes of God. And in the meantime, we happen to discover some things very pertinent to the average, typical daily living for every believer who goes through life. John, as he reveals for us in chapter 12 of Revelation, introduces us to the many faces of evil. And of course, the first and foremost would be Satan. And he reveals to us his downfall. He is a real personality. He's not some mist in a cloud. He has a real agenda. He isn't throwing peaches or walnuts. He isn't backed into a corner with a crucifix. He isn't shuddering at the thought of feeling some kind of holy water from the Jordan River. And he doesn't tremble at some magic prayer. No, in fact, John will give us the plan of escape, not only for those who face his final assault, but for every believer who even today wants to live a victorious Christian life. So let's go back to Revelation chapter 12 as John wraps up his description of the red dragon, the enemy, Satan, the devil, as he attempts to hinder the word and work of God. Let's go back and get a running start, beginning with verse 7. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, The dragon and his angels waged war and they were not strong enough and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. Now we already studied in our last session the fact that they are continually accusing the believer before God and here they are disbarred. The enemy is disbarred and dismissed from that access which he has had up until this point in heaven. Of course you remember studying Job and the access of Satan who accused him before God. Well that now ends at this moment. Verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil, Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, that is dismissed from the heavenly court. He who who has accused or accuses them before our God day and night. So John is now talking about how to escape the dragon's prosecution. And he gives us the final ending part of this story that is yet to come as his prosecution ends. Now for our study today, notice the amazing revelation provided for us that overcomes the enemy, even for us today. Look at verse 11. And they overcame... This one, this enemy, the Satan, the dragon, because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. Who are they in this text who overcome him? Well, the antecedent to they is this phrase, the brethren both those who've been martyred during the first three and a half years of the tribulation, those who will still be yet killed or martyred in the final days of the tribulation, but it can also include every believer, because we're being accused even now, every believer who has been accused by Satan before the presence of God. The brethren then actually would include you and me, verse 10 says, whom he accuses before our God day and night. Now, the question is what overcomes him? What is it that strips him of his legal power and accusation against us? What is it that disarms him finally, but yet even now practically? We're given the answer in three powerful statements that will be true of the believer in the tribulation but also every believer throughout redemptive history, even those of us who will be raptured one day. And so let's slow it down and let's go through these three statements and I'll give them to you in principle form. First, they rested in their perfected forgiveness. They rested in their perfected forgiveness. Notice again the first phrase of verse 11, and they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb. Not holy water from the Jordan River. Not some heavenly gem hanging from your rear view mirror. The victory of the believer is not binding Satan or some demon with an incantation or rebuking him with some magic prayer. Our victory is through and by means of the life-giving, blood-shedding, sacrificing of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. So Peter would write, you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, not even, may I add, gold dust that fell from heaven. No, you are redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. So when Satan and his fallen angels... Accuse us even in this dispensation before God and accuse God before us. And they they conspire, do they not, with our own fallen flesh? And they whisper with that prosecutorial inner voice saying things like, What right do you have to call yourself a Christian? Look at yourself. Look at all you've done. Look at your sins. Look at your failures. Look at the mess you've made again. How could God ever love you? How could you ever dare to say that you belong to Him and that He belongs to you? Just look at yourself. Have you ever heard anything like that? Of course you have. So, what do we say to the accusing serpent even today? How about this? You're right. You're absolutely right. We are sinners, and I foremost. We have made a mess of things again. We have lied. We have acted out of anger. We have focused on self. We have had impure thoughts. We we have mistreated others. And I can look over my shoulder just the last forty eight hours and maybe see some example. We have demanded our own rights. We have stood up for I, me, and my. You are absolutely right. It's all true. But you're forgetting something. The blood of Jesus Christ. Which cleanses me. From all sin. 1 John 1 7. You seem to have forgotten. That all of my lawless deeds. And all of my sins. Have been forgiven. Romans 4, verse 7. You seem to have forgotten that all my sin, past, present, and future, has already been nailed as a certificate of debt to the cross of Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. Which has staggering theological implications. Christ died 2,000 years ago. That means, friends, when he saved you, he saw everything you would ever do. Every sin, past, present, and future. You can't surprise him. And he nailed that to the cross, as it were, when Christ became sin on our behalf bearing in his body on the tree our sin that we, being now dead to sin, could live under righteousness, Peter writes. So remind the accusing old serpent of that truth. You are a sinner, and you say, you're right, I am. But I'm more than that. Yes, I am an old clay pot with cracks and fissures, but I'm more than that. Yes, I am flawed and depraved, my inner core evil. Yes, but I am more than that. I happen to be redeemed by the Lamb and there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. That's the truth of Romans chapter 8 verse 1. So he will have his downfall but in your life even today he can have a downfall so to speak as you remind him of your perfected forgiveness. A believer In Ray Steadman's church, Ray is now with the Lord, and he has a wonderful little commentary on Revelation, which I'm reading along as I study here. And He had a woman in his church write a poem in light of their studies and these texts, and I thought it would be wonderful to read it to you. It certainly encouraged me. She tied a lot of different verses and phrases together that we've already talked about. Listen to what she wrote. I sinned. And straightway, post-haste, Satan flew before the presence of the Most High God and made a railing accusation there. He said, "'This soul, this thing of clay and sod, has sinned. "'Tis true that he names thy name. "'But I demand his death, for thou hast said, "'The soul that sinneth, it shall die. "'Shall not thy sentence be fulfilled? "'Is your justice dead? "'Send now this wretched sinner to his doom. "'What other thing can a righteous ruler do?' And thus he did accuse me day and night, and every word he spoke, O God, was true. Then quickly one rose from the Father's right hand, before whose glory angels veiled their eyes. He spoke, every jot and tittle of the law must be fulfilled, the guilty sinner dies. But wait, suppose his guilt were all transferred to me, and that I paid his penalty. Behold my hands, my side, my feet. One day I was made sin for him and died that he might be presented faultless at thy throne. And Satan flew away. Full well he knew that he could not prevail against such love. For every word my dear Lord spoke was true. Isn't that good? They overcame him by this truth. By the blood of the Lamb. For the victorious believer then his forgiven status is the root... Of his victory from which everything else grows and flourishes. Now, not only do we see them here resting in their perfected cleansing and thus following their example, secondly, they resonated with a public confession. Notice verse 11 again. And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. So you have, first of all, the principle of perfected forgiveness or cleansing, which will ultimately defeat the enemy. It defeats him now even in our lives today. But you have next, the principle of public confession, which daily defeats the strategies of the enemy, not only in your life, but in your world. They trusted because of the word, the logos is the word here, of their testimony. Now you might read this text and think, well, you know, it sounds like it's all up to me again. It's the blood of the lamb, but then it's also my perfect testimony. No, the emphasis here, by the way, is not on the words, their testimony. The emphasis is on the words because of the logos, because of the word. In fact, you could literally translate it then to mean this. In fact, follow carefully as I read it. And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and the word of God to which they have borne testimony see the emphasis? We overcome the dragon because of who we are related to and because of what we have revealed to us in the word of God. And we testify that it is the truth. It is his logos for us. And because of that, we can joyfully testify to its truth. So the victorious believer lives in light of his forgiveness. He claims it, he daily rejoices in it. And the victorious believer lives by the truth of the word of God, which he then has joyful freedom to deliver, to testify of that it is in fact the power of God unto salvation. This is it. God has spoken, the answer is here. And it is the power of God. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is the weapon of the Spirit of God in our hand as we deliver the truth in our world. So you have defeated the serpent as it were through salvation. That's theological truth. You defeat the serpent as you deliver the gospel to your world, testifying to its truth. And that's practical truth as well. We decided to print up a little track because we had people asking about it. In fact, we had a track and... And uh, ran out, and for whatever reason, didn't reorder. And we got an absolutely new one. In fact, on the back, we've had printed Colonial Baptist Church with the phone number and uh, the website. It's a track that is very, very easy to pass out because of what it says on the front: "How to get to heaven from North Carolina." It's just perfect. Nobody can turn you down. It's just so easy. It's small. You can put it with your tip. You can leave it behind. You can give it to somebody. In fact, it's very easy to hand out. In fact, I'll just, I'll pick a volunteer. Let me have a volunteer. Thank you. Come up here. I know you, Ed. Good. All right. I'll just show you how easy it is. Ed, I'd like to give you a free roadmap, how to get to heaven from North Carolina. Take it. See how easy that was? (laughs) Listen, Ed, there are a lot of maps in the world, and there are a lot of maps to take you through North Carolina, but this is the most important one. This will take you to heaven. And if I can ever help you, if you want to read that through sometime, I'd be glad to. There's a phone number on the back. Thank you very much. Give me that. Go sit down. Thank you very much. (laughs) Oh, these volunteers. Okay. You know something, my friends? The average Christian has never... Ever passed out a gospel track? The average Christian in the church has never mentioned the name of Jesus Christ to somebody they work with. I'll never forget the tears, the hot tears that coursed down the cheeks of a man. I, I was at a funeral, and he came up to me afterward and he said, I rode to work, we carpooled every day for 25 years, and I never told that man I belonged to Jesus Christ. I think one of the simplest things to do is to pick up these. These are located in the bookstore. They're free. Take this opportunity to deliver the gospel. It is the overcoming power over the dragon who hates the sound of Christ's gospel. Deliver it. You say, well, I'm not clever enough. Well, you know what? You never know how Ed's going to respond. You never know how Bill or Susie or whatever, they're going to look at you or maybe they won't look at you. Maybe they'll walk away. But you attempt to deliver the gospel to them. And you say, well, what if they ask me a question? I'm going to get stumped. Let me assure you, you will get stumped. Okay? You don't decide to become a testimony for Christ when you have all the answers. Now I am a walking Bible encyclopedia and now I will deliver the truth of the gospel. No, you'll never do it. Be willing to be stumped and to say, you know, I'm going to go back to the Bible and I'm going to find that answer and I'll come back to you with an answer. I love the testimony of Dr. Charles Feinberg, a well-respected professor of Old Testament. I have his commentaries in my library. Long been with the Lord. He was raised in an Orthodox Jewish home, both parents Jews. Very committed to Judaism. In fact, they hired a woman to come in and clean their home on Saturday because they didn't want to work or cook or clean. They were wealthy enough to do it. She was referred to as a Sabbath Gentile. A Gentile whom they didn't mind putting to work on the Sabbath day. She happened to know Christ. No education. She just knew the Lord. And she would come in on Saturday and she would just cook and clean and with her quiet testimony, unnerved this family. Until finally young Charles once asked her the source of her peace. And she told him the gospel of Christ. And he would later believe, in fact, enter the ministry. You have the foundation of perfected forgiveness. You have the practice of public confession. Thirdly, these victorious believers focused on their permanent glory. Look at the last part of verse 11. It says here, They didn't love their own life even when faced with death. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. They loved Christ more than their own lives. They were willing to put it all on that altar, so to speak, for the sake of this one of whom they testified. Let me, let me quickly review these three principles of victory for the believer. In the first point, the blood of the lamb, you have the principle of permanent cleansing. In the second point, the word of their testimony, you have the principle of public confession. And then in the final point, they did not love their own lives. You have basically the principle of personal concentration. They focused on eternal glory. You know what defeats the enemy in your own life? When you focus on your future. You focus on eternal glory. He will have us self-enamored. He will have us self-focused. Everything is about I, me, and mine. But those who claim the blood of Christ those who will testify of the Lord's saving power, those who will love him more than themselves will live daily victorious lives. In fact, John Phillips puts it this way, what can Satan do with the likes of these? Lock them up in prison and they convert their jailers. Torture them, they become partakers of Christ's sufferings and heirs to even a greater reward. Martyr them and they go straight to be with Christ and turn them loose and they evangelize their world. This is the outworking of the dragon's downfall. Like missionary Karen Watson, I read about recently, who was martyred for her faith just a couple of years ago before going to serve Christ in Iraq. She left a letter with special instructions and it would be read by her pastor at her funeral. The letter began, You are only reading this if I died. The letter included gracious words to family and friends. And and in this closing summary, and notice her concentration and focus. She wrote, and I quote her, To obey him was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory is my reward. These are they who escape the dragon's prosecution." And so shall we with the same weapons. Now we'll watch them escape the dragon's persecution. Notice his fury in verse 12 again, the middle part. Woe to the earth and sea because the devil has come down to you. That is now he's disbarred from heaven. He's come down to you having great wrath knowing he only has a short time. He knows his time is short. Verses 6 and 14 tell us it's about three and a half Years left the latter part of this tribulation period. So now, having been disbarred from heaven, thrown to earth, he can no longer accuse the brethren before God. He is enraged. He's enraged beyond words because of the limitations now placed upon his freedom. One author said he picks himself up from the dust of the earth. He shakes his fist at the sky and glares around, choking with fury for ways to vent his hatred and his spite upon humankind. He has been checkmated and mastered by the one he hates most of all. And so, what does he do? Verse 13 tells us And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman. That's Israel, who gave birth to the male child. That is, he now goes and with even greater fury persecutes the nation which delivered the Jewish Messiah. Verse 14, but the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. That's Daniel's terminology for three and a half years. Now, the revelation continues to use figurative language. Here he goes back to referring to Israel as the woman. He speaks of the dragon, the water that will come from the dragon's mouth. He speaks figuratively of the rescue of the woman on the wings of an eagle. This is language, by the way, that God has already used to speak of Israel's escape. In fact, he uses this language to speak of their escape from Egypt. In Exodus 19, he says, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. John here is referring to the midpoint of the tribulation where Jews will once again face the potential of another holocaust and they flee. Jesus Christ predicts that this is yet future. He speaks in the Mount Olivet Discourse of this moment in the future when Jews will flee after the Antichrist desecrates the temple in Jerusalem. We know that happens at the midpoint of the tribulation. He ends his false peace with Israel. He desecrates, he desolates. We call it the abomination of desolation. Uh, In the temple, probably doing what Antiochus Epiphanes did, pre-shadowing him centuries earlier. He sacrifices a pig, perhaps, on the altar. He makes the temple then null and void. It's useless, it's meaningless to the Jew. At that moment, when the Antichrist desolates or desecrates the temple, the Jews then, with their peace ended, flee. Listen to what Jesus Christ said will happen. In fact, he warns them in Matthew 24. He says, When you see this happen, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in the house. In other words, don't even pack. Whoever is in the field, don't even go back to get your cloak. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world, Matthew twenty four fifteen to 21. John informs us here in Matthew, or in Revelation chapter 12, that once the Jewish people recognize that that false peace has ended, they see what the Antichrist does in desolating the temple. They who are able escape, they run, and they're going to be nourished and protected by the Lord. Now, we're not exactly told where they run. The Israelite remnant flees for safety. Many Bible scholars conjecture that, that the place they run to is the ancient city of Edom. It's a city literally carved out of rock known as Petra, that's Latin for rock. And, of course, uh, closely equivalent to that the Greek language. Uh, many of the buildings in this ancient City are literally carved out of the sandstone. Now, the development of this amazing city began at least a thousand years before the birth of Christ. And, And don't have in your mind that this is some primitive hole in a rock. These buildings were not just primitive carvings dug into the sides of the mountain, they are intricately and beautifully crafted. These buildings, which have now stood for centuries. Historians Record for us that an earthquake in the sixth century A.D. caused the city to be abandoned, evidently for fear that the mountains would collapse upon them, and of course the buildings would collapse with future earthquakes. So Petra was then abandoned. It began to be excavated again in 1812, period of time we say it was rediscovered, and intense excavation since then has has been carried on, in fact, even to this day with the university. I think it's Brown University that's carrying it on. What makes the city all the more fitting, and why many scholars believe the Jews are going to run here, is that it can be easily protected. Many of these buildings can be accessed only by riding a camel or a donkey or maybe one jeep at a time or marching single file between huge sandstone cliffs. As a result of being surrounded by these sheer cliffs... And many of the buildings of Petra are easy to guard, relatively easy to protect. It's here in Petra, perhaps, that a believing remnant of Jews will be protected as the dragon unleashes unbelievable fury upon them. Verse 15 of Revelation 12 informs us that the serpent will send a river out of his mouth after the woman. So that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. In other words, he tracks her down and then sends a river after her. He may very well try to flood them out by diverting a river of water toward them. The language, even though in a figurative context, seems to indicate that a literal destruction by water is his intention. It's interesting to discover from the sources that I have read about this city built into the rocky sandstone mountains even at this point in time in the 21st century only about 10 to 15 percent of the city has even been discovered yet to be excavated we know enough about it to know however that a river would be the perfect way to end its resistance wouldn't it be be the perfect way Perhaps the enemies, through some sort of engineering feat, will tap into an underground uh, river, which are common in this region. And he's able to divert that water source to rush like a flood toward Petra, by which he hopes to drown out the Jewish people. They wouldn't have any way out. They'd be caught, as water would fill every crevice and cavern. But God provides a miracle of his provision... By doing something he's already done several times in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 15 and Numbers chapter 16 speak of what he may do here. He causes the earth to open up and literally drain off the water. Look at verse 16. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of its mouth. So the dragon was enraged with a woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children. In other words, he's stymied, so now he goes after the rest of her children, her offspring, her seed. Obviously, this woman can't be Mary because we're told that the dragon goes off to fight her offspring. The sons and daughters born to Mary and Joseph after Jesus, half-brothers and sisters, of course, of our Lord... In fact, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, we're given the names of his brothers, half-brothers. They're certainly not alive here, and they're not in view here. Uh, Furthermore, the the woman cannot be the church because the church, as we've studied, did not give birth to Christ. Christ gave birth to the church. This woman is Israel, who delivers the Messiah, a Jewish descendant of David, and the dragon now, envision him here, he's disbarred from heaven. He's sent to earth... He's stymied at Petra. He knows his time is short. He turns his final fury then upon the children of Israel, the offspring of the woman. Satan now, through his puppet Antichrist, unleashes what he hopes to be the final extermination, the last holocaust against the Jewish people. Now, I would agree with those scholars who believe his target is broadened beyond the Jew simply because you notice that John implies such, as he says here in the latter part of verse 17, that he will go after all who obey the commandments of God. That word entole, commandments, isn't a reference to the Old Testament Ten Commandments, it's a reference to the commandments of God in relation to Jesus Christ. The entole of God. The commandments of God as it relates to Christ. And, notice in your text, and all of those who hold to the testimony of Jesus, This would include not only believing Jews who didn't make it to the safety of the city, but also to the believing Gentile who lives throughout the world having come to believe the testimony of God's word after the rapture has occurred. So Revelation chapter 12 then concludes with an amazing description of this first and foremost face of evil, the dragon. Now evidently we need to not only be aware of His fury and his failure, but we also need to know how to fight him. We need to know how he acts and what he does and what our weapons are. We need to be able to recognize him. I was reminded in studying this verse of being at the airport on one occasion a number of years ago when our twin sons were about six years of age. We were going to pick up their maternal grandmother who who was flying in to visit for Christmas it was 1991, according to my notes, and the war in Iraq was underway, known as, you remember, Desert Storm. And I was standing there at the terminal. We got as close as we could to the the, the, the uh, door from which all of the passengers would disembark, and there was some delay. We didn't know what was going on, and then here came all of these soldiers. Coming out of the plane, allowed to disembark first. It was a rather impressive retinue. They were dressed in their fatigues and their boots and and their guns strapped to their sides. It was quite impressive, and they literally walked right in front of us as they filed out. Two boys, six year old boys, you know, were awestruck. One of them finally said to me, kinda of whispered, Daddy, look at those army men. And one of them heard that, stopped, looked down at him and said, Son, we're not army. We're Marines. (laughs) Recognize, men and women, who you are, who you happen to be, and remember you happen to be in a war. It's fought daily in this dispensation. Revelation 12 is not your conflict, it won't be ours. But the enemy hasn't changed now for thousands of years. In fact, Ephesians 6 tells you how to get dressed out for battle. Read it sometime. And remember, your enemy is ruthless. He is bloodthirsty. He is unmerciful. He can't have your soul, but he will have your testimony. He will have your confidence. He will take away from your mind the root of your assurance. He goes for the throat. He doesn't throw soft peaches. He throws insults and accusations against you before God. And he brings them about God before you. So how do you overcome? This gives us the clue. Remind him of the blood of the lamb, blood for sinners slain. Remind him of the word of God in your testimony that it is true and love Christ more than your own life. And while you're at it, remember. Remember this. Satan has already read his future. Don't let him keep you pinned down in defeat. In the meantime, with his empty threats and accusations, you have seen the end. He loses. He fails. So for now, claim the blood of Christ daily, sometimes moment by moment. You are, you have been, and you will be forgiven. Confess your faith publicly to others. Remember, you are his ambassador. Maybe begin with just a little piece of paper to help you get started this little track. And then focus on your everlasting future with Jesus Christ because you are on your way to heaven. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your inspired word. And with all of its authority, it declares to us who we are. But better than that, who we belong to. For by faith we have come to this cleansing stream. By faith we've been plunged beneath it. Our sin is washed away. And yes, we daily sin and so we daily battle the accuser as well as our flesh, Father. Help us to continually claim the ongoing cleansing of the blood of our Christ our Savior, our Messiah, our Lamb. Would you help us to take opportunity whenever we can to testify to the truthfulness of your word as ambassadors of Christ? And cause us even today to focus beyond ourselves, beyond our lives, maybe even beyond our troubles or victories. And be reminded today of our future and that everlasting glory with Christ our Lord.